Well, I, I do thank you for the prayer, Jennifer. That was that means a lot to me. I really appreciate it. Um, I hope that you all are enjoying this season of Lent. Uh, I I grew up in a tradition that didn't teach very much about Lent, so I didn't really know about it. In fact, the first Ash Wednesday service that I went to was when I was a sophomore in college at this small Anglican parish on the south side of St. Paul. And ever since then, it's just been a really a blessed time of year for me and for our family. Um, because it is the time of year where we stop, we pause, we, we actively give thanks for what God has done. Um, and, and I'm honored to be here to be preaching God's word with you today. So really, I do hope that it's been a good season for you. Today, I'd like to start uh, by saying that I don't think of myself as a stubborn man. Um, although my wife at times would deeply disagree with me. In that, and, and I will tell a quick story that, that will kind of uphold her, her side of the story. Um, so when I was in the second grade, I went to the eye doctor, as, as second graders do, to get my eyes checked. And while that was going on, the doctor said, looks like you're going to need a prescription. Nothing serious, just enough to, to help your eyes not deteriorate over the years. And I said, okay, great. So second grade, got my, picked up my lenses, got the prescription. The next day was picture day at school, so I was like feeling fresh and cool in my new my new shades. Um, but I started wearing them. And I started getting these, like, these headaches that when I talk to glasses wearers, they, some of them are like, yeah, I, I, when I first started wearing glasses, I started getting these headaches too. So I went to my mom and I was like, mom, I got, I'm getting these headaches and they're really bothering me. And she just informed me, this is what happens. Your eyes are adjusting to a new way of seeing. It's okay. Don't worry about it. But I was like, ah, I really don't like it. So I'm not going to wear them. So skip ahead quite a long time to my freshman year of college. Uh, so second grade to college, I was not wearing glasses. I just chose a blurry. I wasn't like a, a danger on the roads or anything. It was just like slightly, just it's for my own sake really more than anything else. But anyways, I get to college, and in college, I'm reading more than I've ever had. I'm in classes more than I've ever been in, and I'm sitting far away, and I'm just getting these crazy, crazy headaches. And I was dating Kelsey at the time, and she was like, you need to go to the eye doctor. And I was like, I don't want to go to the eye doctor. <laughs> And, but I, she, eventually, I was having these headaches. I couldn't get out of bed. I mean, they were just seriously bad headaches. So I finally went, went to go see the doctor, and uh, the doctor said, you know, you need a prescription, nothing serious, just so your eyes don't deteriorate over the course of your life. And I was like, yeah, I feel like I've heard this before. And they were like, have you ever worn glasses before? And I said, yes. And like, why aren't you wearing them now? I was like, because I didn't like them. And they rolled their eyes at me. And anyways... The point of the story is to emphasize something that I think Mark brings out in his gospel and story of Jesus. And the, and the point that I want to make here, first and foremost, is this. A new way of seeing doesn't always come easy and always requires a transformation. A new way of seeing doesn't always come easy and always requires a change of some kind. And I kind of want to open up this topic for us today, walking through the book of Mark. So if you have a Bible... Uh, go ahead and grab it, open it up. If you don't have a Bible with you or you don't own a Bible, there are Bibles in the front over here to my left and in the back as well. Please take them, use them, make use of them. That's what they're there for. But today, if you, you have your Bibles, open them to Mark chapter 8. We've been in Mark the past few weeks. We are, we're hanging with Mark as we journey through to Easter, right? This is kind of our Lenten routine to, to, to get into a book, to, to hang out there, and to see what God would have for us in this season. And we've been with Mark, and today we're going to continue with Mark. 
And the series title is Marked, right? The, there's obvious wordplay there. Um, but there's also a, a real powerful significance to it as well. A beautiful image that comes to mind is Ash Wednesday, right? Ash Wednesday, we had it in this room, and we had a station set up over here where people could come and get a, an ash cross painted on their forehead. And in fact, some churches have their, that service earlier in the day so that Christians would walk out of their halls with a mark of Jesus so that when they go to Target, they've got an ash cross on their forehead. When they are interacting with friends and family, they have a mark that they are following after Jesus. And the hope, our hope, is that in this season, we would recognize that that mark is with us wherever we go, whether it's visible or not. That, that we have been marked and shaped and changed by Jesus. And hopefully, what we're trying to do is define and put language around what are those marks of a follower of Jesus? What should they be and what could they look like? So today we'll continue with this theme as we go through Mark chapter 8 and Mark chapter 10. The title of today's sermon is Blindness, right? Because we're going to look at something very interesting that Mark does in his gospel with Jesus. So a little bit of teaching before we jump into the text. All of the gospel narratives have characteristics that are unique to their style. I remember thinking growing up as a kid that there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that they were just kind of biographies of Jesus. And they, and they are, right? They, they take us through the life and, and the teachings of Jesus and who he was. But the reason we have four of them in our Bible is because they each shine a new narrative and a new perspective, one on who God is, but also on the ministry and teachings and life of Jesus. They, they bring out something unique about who Jesus is. Each one of them does. Um, and something that Mark does in, in his storytelling is he, he does this thing that we have come to call the, a, a Markin sandwich, right? And I think we ha- actually have a picture of a first century example of this. It's crazy that we have this picture. But if you have it, yeah. <laughs> crazy that we got that picture, right? Whoa. Amazing. Just kidding. It's just a sandwich. No, okay, so what... What we have here and what Mark does is, is he takes two similar stories. They're usually metaphors or they're usually uh, a miraculous healing or, or something that Jesus does that's kind of out of the ordinary. He has two very similar stories. And in between, there's a unifying message or theme between them. And the, the stories on the outside, the bread, if you will, is something that helps to emphasize the point being told in the middle. And Mark does this multiple places in his gospel. And where we're looking today, we're, f- we're focusing on two stories of blind men in Mark's gospel to identify what Mark is trying to teach us about true discipleship. Many scholars have looked over chapters 8 through 10, and, and they see that Jesus has this teaching, this, um, this uh, similar teaching of the way of the cross or the way of suffering. But really, what Jesus is explaining is what does it mean to be a true disciple of Jesus? Now that the kingdom of God has come through Jesus' life and ministry, what does it mean to live inside of that? And Mark is a short gospel. Um, It's actually the shortest of all of the four gospels. But he dedicates almost three whole chapters to this idea of what it means to be a true disciple. So you, you can tell just by that, just by context alone, that Mark really cares about communicating what it means to follow Jesus intentionally. And we're gonna look at that today through the eyes of blind men. So, Mark chapter 8 begins with a very famous story. Begin, and I'm just going to kind of walk us through this story as we get to uh, the, the story of, of our first blind man. 
So at the beginning of Mark chapter 8, Jesus is teaching a large group of people. The the Bible says 4,000 men, right? So that's not even counting uh, women and children. But this large group of people, and he has compassion on them. So he goes to his disciples, and he's like, yo, let's get some food, and let's feed these people. They've been with me for a long time. They're hungry. And the disciples are like, "Uh, we don't have any food. We uh, we especially don't have enough food to feed 4,000 people. And Jesus says this to them in in verse 5. How many loaves do you have? And the disciples say, we have seven loaves. Jesus is like, great, bring them to me. They bring him the loaves, and he blesses them or prays over them, and he just starts tearing, 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 until 4,000 people are fed. And not only that, but the disciples collect seven full baskets of bread left over. So this huge miracle, right? Like if someone gave me a loaf of bread to feed all of you, I'm sorry, but you'd be hungry. Like I just, the first row, maybe you might have some food, but Jesus makes much out of little, right? This huge miracle. But then immediately following this story is a very interesting story of some Pharisees. A group of Pharisees come to Jesus right after this huge miracle that he does, and they demand a sign from him. Like they demand, we want to see something else. Like We're not impressed yet, Jesus, so come on, here we go. And Jesus is is obviously perturbed by this because this is what he says to them in in verse 12. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And then Jesus abruptly leaves. He gets into a boat with his disciples and they shove off into the sea. Now, as they are kind of moving out into the sea, the disciples realize that they don't have any bread. And this is a big deal. They're hungry. Um, even though they just, again, just saw what Jesus did, they're freaking out because they don't have enough bread. And the reason I know they're freaking out is because Jesus, as you can imagine, is probably ruminating over what the, the Pharisees have just said. Because he's nervous or, or concerned about that idea infiltrating the mind of his disciples. And so, so he says this to them. He says, watch out to his disciples in verse 15. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, leaven is, is something that helps bread rise, right? It fills bread up, essentially. It's air, right? And what Jesus is really saying is be careful of the Pharisees' teaching. Don't let it distract you. Don't, don't let it puff up your mind with these ideas that aren't true. But once again, I think the disciples just hear the word leaven, which is connected to bread, and they're like, right, Jesus, exactly. We don't have any food. I'm hungry right now. And we only have one piece of bread. And so Jesus goes on to say this to them in verse, chapter, in verse 7. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? In other words, guys, would you listen, please? <laughs> and then he goes on to say this. Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? So these stories set up the context before our introduction to this first blind man. So at the heels of this story, Jesus is interacting with Pharisees who don't get it. And then interacting with his own disciples who still miss it. And then we are introduced by these stories to a problem that is definitely not localized to the disciples themselves, but is in my heart, is in our hearts as we follow Jesus. And it is the problem of not seeing, recognizing, celebrating, and genuinely understanding the significance of Jesus in his gospel, of, of consistently missing it, right? If ever you have been following Jesus and feel like, I just can't get it right, I just keep missing it, you're kind of in good company. 
The disciples were in that place too. So after Jesus rebukes the disciples and the Pharisees, Mark tells this story of Jesus coming into town, this this town called Bethsaida, and interacting with a blind man. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Mark chapter 8. We'll start reading in verse 22. This is what it says, verse 22. And they, meaning Jesus and the disciples, came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And, he, and Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And the blind man looked up and said, I, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home, saying, do not even enter the village. Now, a little Bible trivia. This is the only account in all of the four Gospels where Jesus is recorded as touching someone two times in order for them to be completely restored. And there are some people that say, like, Jesus had... His miraculous juices were, like, low that day. Like, he missed his coffee. He was kind of off his game a little bit. I, I don't, I personally don't think that that's the case here. Because I think what, what Mark does is he, he strategically uses this story in order to teach a very important lesson, which is that we need multiple healing encounters with Jesus, right? We need to keep coming back to him. We need to keep saying, I, I'm still missing it, Jesus. I'm still sending, please be there again. Touch me again. Give me sight again. And the reason I say that is because of the story that follows. So right after this story, Jesus gathers his disciples. And this this quick story that I'm about to tell you is the turning point in Mark's gospel. It's a huge moment. So he gathers his disciples together and he asks them a question. He says, "Who, who do people say that I am? And they say... Isaiah, or some say Jeremiah, some say that you're just a great prophet or the prophet. And then he says, okay, great. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, you know, Peter, just like, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, yeah, good job, Peter. Like, way to go. That is right. Upon this rock I will build my church. A blessing on you, Peter. Good job. And normally I feel like, Preaching and sermons end there because it's real happy and it's like, yes, we need to recognize Jesus for who he is. But I'm not going to end there um, because Mark doesn't end there. The story right after that, right after that, Jesus celebrates Peter, says, well done, good job. Jesus goes into the first account of, of him telling of his death, foretelling his death. That's why scholars call this the way of the cross because three times Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to die. So Jesus says, the Son of Man will be threatened, he will be captured, he will be killed, and then he will rise again. Now, this was shocking news to Jewish people. Jews were expecting Messiah who would come and just like rip apart strongholds and, and have this malicious revolt against, against oppressors. They were not anticipating the Messiah to say, I'm going to be captured, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to rise again. So Peter, taking the knowledge that he had that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, probably on this like spiritual high, right? Like, yes, I, I know who Jesus is. I called it out. I was the first one to say it. This is great. He senses a problem with Jesus' teaching. And so he takes Jesus. I like, Jesus, come on. Come here. We got to talk. And the Bible says that he, he rebukes Jesus. 
he, he condemns Jesus for saying what he said because that didn't mesh with his understanding of, of who God is and what God does. And this is what Jesus says to him. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Pretty strong language there. And the point I, I want to I make here is this. In a life of following Jesus, correct understanding is compelled by a corrective lifestyle. Correct understanding, good knowledge is compelled by a life lived, corrected by Jesus. See, in a perfect world, I would get the right prescription for my glasses. They would give them to me. I would put them on. I would have like a, you know, a period of time where my eyes kind of adjust. I have a couple headaches. But then I'm good. My eyes have adjusted. They've been corrected. I don't have to do anything anymore. I don't need my lenses. I can take them off and whatever. But that's not how it works. I'm still wearing glasses. My eyes continue to need help. And part of the life of, of a Christian is finding out how unexpectedly wrong we are a lot of the time. I can't tell you how many times I thought I've had a handle on God, enough to go to God when things aren't going my way and instructing him on how things should be going. Which is really silly when, it, when, it, when I say it out loud, right? I hope that you can hear the silliness in that. And, and we can look at Peter's encounter with Jesus and again think that that's silly, but how often is that our story? How often do we go to God and say, listen, I know, I know you're trying, God, you're really trying, but you're just, you got it wrong here. Let me help you out. Let me help you understand this. Too often do I do that. And when Jesus reprimands Peter of this, he says something profound. He says, your mind is set on the things of man rather than the things of God. And the difference between the two is that we control the things of man, but we do not control the things of God. Maybe want to control the things of God, but, but we just can't and don't. Peter didn't think it was fitting for a Messiah to be put on a cross, so he took matters into his own hands and told Jesus that he had things wrong. But you see, Jesus actually prepares us for a life like this, a, a life of, of not going to God and saying, this is how things should be, but rather coming before God and saying, your will be done, not my will. He, and he, Jesus instructs us right after he calls Peter out. In fact, I was reading this morning, and I recognized that, that before Jesus rebukes Peter, he looks to see if his disciples are around so that he, they can hear. And I don't think he meant to shame Peter. I think he, he saw a teachable moment where he could bring his disciples together and say, this is actually the lifestyle of, of the kingdom of God. Maybe not what you are expecting, but this is it. So then as he gathers his disciples, Jesus says this in, in verse 34 of chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Again, very strong language here. Our lives need to be consistently corrected, just like my weak eyes need these corrective lenses. 
And basically what I'm saying is without constant help, we are blind. Without constant help from God, we are blind. So taking that story of chapter 8 and skipping a few chapters to chapter 10, the very end of chapter 10 actually, we, in, we meet another blind man. So this is the other half of the sandwich, right? The other half of the bread. In chapter 10, verse 35, James and John, two of Jesus' inner circle, come to him, and they say to to Jesus, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, parents, just think of this in the context of your kids coming to you and being like, Mom, I want you to do whatever I say. Like, I don't know about, I don't know your home, but that would not have flown in my house. Like, my mom would have been like, yeah, right, get out of here. I'm not going to listen to you. But look how Jesus responds. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? James and John come to him. What, we want you to do whatever we say, Jesus. And he, he's like, okay, what do you want? And then James and John say this. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Now, this may seem like an innocent request. But it's so not. <laughs> it's unbelievably not. Because essentially what they're asking, the way that this question is formed is they want power. Right? They want status. They, they know that Jesus is the guy. He's, he's got the number one seat. But they want to make very sure that their number two seat is like ready for them in heaven. The comfortability of this question is crazy to me. But Jesus takes this opportunity to teach all his disciples what real power looks like in the kingdom of God. Again, he gathers them around and he says this to them in verse 42. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For, and catch this, even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus flips the arrogance of his disciples on its head. And says, if you want to be great in my house, no problem. Wash these people's feet. If you want to be known as, as the number two in heaven, you better get good at letting go of status and better get really good at serving other people. Because that's how we measure greatness in my house. And, and, and Jesus emphasizes the point by pointing to himself. He's essentially saying, yeah, that, this is what I'm doing. I was there already. And I, and I came here to be a servant of all and a ransom for many. This is the first time in Mark's gospel where Jesus actually explains why he's dying. Every other time he's announcing it. I, I will go to the cross. I will die and I will raise again. But this is the first time at the end of chapter 10 where he says, no, I, I'm here to serve. And my service is a ransom for many for you. So again, he, he takes this moment of the disciples missing it, not quite getting it, and shows them the way of the kingdom of God. So then, as we transition out of that story, as Mark transitions out of that story, once again we meet a blind man. Once again, Mark uses a blind, the healing of a blind man to emphasize the blindness of the disciples in order to teach us something about how our eyes can be open. 
So last week, Pastor Chris told us the story of blind Bartimaeus, right? If you were here, he told us the story of, uh, of Bartimaeus immediately, as soon as he heard Jesus' voice, throwing off his cloak and moving right to Jesus, right? Leaving it all behind and making his way to his Savior. But now I want to focus on Jesus' response to Bartimaeus. So Bartimaeus gets to him, and Jesus asks a familiar question. He says this, what do you want me to do for you? This is the same question that he just asked James and John, right? And when he asked it to James and John, they, they asked for status. They asked for power. What does Bartimaeus ask for? He says this, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus heals him immediately, and Bartimaeus, as Mark puts it, follows Jesus on the way. So the difference here. The, the failure in the disciples' earlier question when Jesus offered his help was their own pride. But when Jesus offered his help to this blind man, when Jesus extended a hand to this blind man, the blind man extended his hand back and said, I, I, I need whatever you can give me. I just want to see. I just want the healing that only you can provide. I just want you. And the blind man's healed. So what, what I mean by, by showing this story, by, by showing the connection between these two blind men in Mark's gospel, is to emphasize that in a life of following God, we can't do it without Jesus. And that, that might be, that may be a redundant thing to say in a church, but I will say it over and over and over and over again, because it's that important to hear. That in a life of following God, we cannot do it without Jesus. Cannot. In two accounts, in Mark 8 and 10, the disciples tried to take what understanding they had of God and then to impose that understanding upon God. And both times, they were compared to blind men, sightless and confused. But then the actual blind men were used as an example for what a life of following God can look like. God took a story of, the, of a person cast aside in society and said, I want you to be like this guy. In other words, he, he's speaking to seeing people and saying, I would rather you be blind and react like this than to see and be confused. So the question for us today is this. When Jesus asked the question, what do you want me to do for you? How will you respond? Will you, will you ask him to give you more control, like Peter wanted over Jesus in that moment of explanation? Will you ask for more status, like James and John? Do you want to be well known? Will you ask for more power, like, like the crowd in, in Bartimaeus, hushing this blind man, putting him down while Jesus was calling him towards himself? Or will we ask to recover our sight like the blind man? so that we might see where he is going and follow him on the way. Notice what Mark does with Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus comes and says, Rabbi, let me receive my sight. And immediately, Jesus heals him. But why? Does he heal him just so that he can see? Possibly, but I think there's more to it. I think Jesus heals him so that he can see where Jesus is going. Right? Because the, the next line is, he was healed, his, his sight was restored, and he followed Jesus on the way. Could he have done that if he was blind? No way. He wouldn't be able to see where Jesus is going. 
but he is healed, his sight is restored, and he sees Jesus, and he's, he's on the way. He's on the way. So today, my, my last question, my last point is a question for you. How will you choose to see today? I think in many ways we choose what we want to see, just like I did when I was in the second grade. I chose to see the world blurry for a long time until my eyes literally couldn't handle it anymore, and I accepted it and needed a change, a transformation, if you will. As you ponder this question, how will you choose to see? Remember the words of Jesus. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Remember, too, the challenge of Bartimaeus, leaving everything behind and coming straight to Jesus. But also remember that it is those who deny themselves, leave it all behind for the sake of Jesus and his gospel, who will see eternally, who will forever be able to see where Jesus is going and follow him on the way, who will be empowered to do so. So now, may we respond to this message by coming to the table of the Lord and celebrating his presence with us through Holy Communion.